0: i have to admit to you that every new year i get a little more cynical i suppose about new year's resolutions and all of that i used to make a whole list of things that i was going to do and then like january 2nd it was all out the window i couldn't i I couldn't even keep my mind on anybody make a list this year how many of you still doing that it's okay to admit it even if i'm cynical i won't make fun of you nobody in the whole church made a list thank you at least some folks did all right good some folks made a list even if it's a mental list you probably came up with some things that you feel will help you make the most of 2014 you say this is the year i'm going to whatever and maybe this is the year you're going to get in the best shape of your life you tried that last year and you know it just the weather was bad you know, and then today it's going to be tough, and you can't get outside and exercise. So maybe try that again next year. I don't know, or maybe maybe this is the year where where you're really and you know, you're going to turn things around at, at work. You know, you're just going to do a better job, or this is the year you're you're finally going to get to the point financially where you say I'm going to retire this year and I won't have to worry about work anymore. Or whatever it may be, maybe you've got a list. You're going to learn a new skill. You're going to go to certain places, <clears throat> wherever and whatever that may be. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of that. Just just so you know. I believe God has has given us the opportunity to enjoy and make the most of life as best we can. So there's nothing wrong with any of those things in and of themselves. But at the same time, uh, I I want to hopefully over the next few weeks as we begin and continue this series on making the most of 2014, I hope that we can build a foundation and and build on top of that some of the, the ways really and the elements that will help us truly to make the most of this year. What if this year really were different for you? And I don't mean different as if things just didn't happen that happened last year to make life tough on you. I mean, really from the inside out, if things were different, if you weren't the same person, if you didn't respond the same way last this year that you did last year, you know, you've heard it said that life is about 10% what happens to you, 90% how you respond to it. What if you responded differently? What if on the inside, you were a different person this year and, and not that things didn't affect you and you were stoic, but you had a different outlook on life. What if your relationships were different? What if the way you used your time was different? What if what if your work life, if you're still working, was different? What if you made the most of your money this year? Those are the four things we'll cover in this series. Today we're going to talk about how to make the most out of relationships. Now, I just want to let you know that this whole series is not meant simply to be a pep talk and to help you feel better about life and to really get excited about 2014 and say, well, you know, this year I'm just going to do better. Let me be honest with you, you can't do any better. Apart from Jesus Christ, you you can't do any better. It's impossible. He himself said it, that apart from me, he said you can do nothing. So you can try hard. And, and you can try even harder tomorrow and the next day and the next day. But apart from Him, you're going to fail miserably, and you will be the same person you were last year, this year, apart from Jesus Christ. Even if you've been a believer in Him for years, if you're trying on your own effort to make 2014 a whole lot different than 2013, good luck because it ain't going to happen. Now, I hate to be the bearer of that kind of news for you, but I guess in one sense, I'm glad to be the bearer of that kind of news, because maybe that points you to the ultimate reality that apart from Jesus, you can do nothing, and only in him can you find a better 2014, and only in him can you be made different and whole from the inside out. And so this, this is not a series, a preaching series, about how to make 2014 just better for you. How can you be the best you can be in 2014. That may be a byproduct, but really, how can 2014 be the full life that God desired for you when he sent Jesus to show us what full life looks like? And so, we'll talk this morning about how to make the most of our relationships. If you would, and some of you take notes during the sermon and some of you don't, I realize that, but if you would, humor me for just a second and take out the insert that has the sermon outline on it, if you don't mind. Now on the front side of that, let me grab one so I can compare notes with you. On the front side of that, what you'll see there is the scripture for today. And you'll also see a little, a little box. Now let me give you what is obviously an undeniable reality in life. And that is, as your relationships go, so goes your life. I don't have to give you chapter and verse on that to prove it to you. The scripture shows us very clearly that the quality of our relationships directly affects and is not just correlated but is cause and effect with the quality of our life. And so you see there that undeniable reality. You know that already. As you look back over your life and and you evaluate the quality of the relationships that you've had at different periods, you would probably say, you know, when my when my relationships were good I really felt good about the way things were going in my life. It seemed as if uh, I, I had a fuller life. Life was more enjoyable. There was more peace. There was there, there was something to life that I couldn't put my finger on, but boy, it was good. And I think if you look back on those times, you'd probably see, you know, during those times when my relationships were great. This morning, I want to talk to you about two different kinds of relationships, the only two that, that we have. And the only two that matter, one of course is with God, the other is horizontally with other people. But I want you to look at that chart there just for a, second. a little box. And if you were honest today and could evaluate the quality of your relationships, I wonder where you would put a little dot or an X on that particular box. Uh, is the quality really high? You see, I've got quality relationships with God and with other people. Or maybe you'd have to distinguish, you know, I feel like right now my relationship with God is high quality, but I'm struggling in relationship with others. Maybe that's in marriage or parenting or friendships or co-worker relationships, whatever it may be. And then maybe you'd also have to distinguish, well, you know, I, I feel like that the quality of my external, my my horizontal relationships are good, but I'm not really sure where I stand with God right now. I feel like I'm getting along with people, that there's adding, they're, they're adding some benefit to me, but I, I'm just not sure about where I stand with God. Maybe you'd have to distinguish. Where, where would you put yourself there if you were to make a mark? And, and again, humor me and at least look down and pretend like you're doing this. How about that? <clears throat> it, it it ruins the whole sermon if I think you're not following along. Right? So anyway, and then if you would maybe make another distinguishing mark about the quality of your life right now. And I don't mean just health. I don't mean just finances. I'm not talking about those but I'm talking about really the internal part of of your quality of life and the part that nobody can see, the joy and the peace and, and, and really the satisfaction, the contentment that you have in life. Where would you place that? Is it really high right now? And you say, you know what, I... Maybe you don't want to say anything because I'm afraid I'm going to mess it up, kind of thing. You know, maybe you just say, you know, really, God has has just brought me a lot of contentment. I'm just experiencing a lot of peace in life, and things aren't perfect. Now I've had some tough times, but honestly, I can't complain. God's been really good to me. Or maybe you'd say, you know, right now my life just stinks. (laughs) I got to admit it. I, I don't enjoy anything about it. I don't enjoy my work. I don't enjoy going to church. I don't enjoy the friends that God has given me. I don't, I, there's nothing really good that I can identify in life. Some of you are afraid to be that honest this morning, but that's why I gave you a little piece of paper, and you don't have to raise your hand and tell me. You can just make a mark that maybe nobody else will see. And you say, the quality of my life is not good. What I hope to show you on that little box is that I believe there is a direct correlation and causation between how, how your relationships are and how your life is the higher quality of relationship that you have with your Heavenly Father and with other people, the higher quality of life that God and those other people bring into you. And typically, if those relationships are not good, if you're distant from God right now, if relationships in your life are strained and not good, then usually the quality of life goes down. There are some who would say, I don't need anybody. I'm good just on my own. I'm sort of an introvert, and I'm a renegade, and I'm my own person, I'm a little bit of a maverick, and I don't need anybody. There are some who would say that, and I would say to you in response, you may have convinced yourself of that. And I will say also, I have those same tendencies, I will tell you. But I will also say that God, even from the beginning of creation, in the Garden of Eden, when He looked at Adam, He said, it's not good for man to be alone we were created for relationships with god and with other people and so if you are a person who says my quality of life is high my quality of relationships is low you are either denying reality and simply pretending that life is good when it's really not or you have missed the idea that god has created relationships to be for your benefit and to help and to add fullness to your life that you cannot get alone it's not good for man to be alone. That's, that's obviously when God created marriage, but at the same time, that is a statement that tells us we were created for relationships. So I hope today that as you honestly evaluate where you are on that scale, quality of relationships, quality of life, that as we work through the Scripture and what Jesus tells us this morning, about how to make the most of those two kinds of relationships, I hope that as 2014 goes along and you apply the truth of the Scripture we'll see today, that you'll see that quality of relationships goes up, and as a direct result, your quality of life increases. I can't promise you that in any way, if you listen to these four sermons over the next few weeks, that if you apply everything that I tell you to do, that you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise for 2014. Now, I I realize that maybe you came here this morning to hear that. And you need a boost this morning, and you need somebody to tell you that if you'll just follow God and have faith, that everything's going to be just fine in your life, and you'll never have any more problems, all the bills will be paid, and everything will be taken care of. You're going to have to bear with me through the rest of the sermon if that's what you came to hear. Because I can't tell you that. I can't speak on behalf of God things He has not spoken. I can tell you that certainly when your relationship with God, the quality of that increases That Jesus promised that He came to give life and life abundantly, life to the fullest. But I can't tell you what that's going to look like specifically in your life. But I do know that's exactly where you want to be, even if you don't know it yet. So let's look at the Scripture this morning that will help us understand how our relationship quality can increase and thereby increasing the fullness that we experience. So if you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. I tell you each week, if you don't know much about the Bible, that's okay. and Don't let that stop you in any way from trying to find where Matthew is. If you brought a Bible with you, the, the Old Testament, New Testament, that's how the Bible is divided. You can go to the table of contents and you can see those things. Look up the book of Matthew, which is the first book in the New Testament. You'll see the page number. You can turn there. And then it's broken down into chapter and into verse, and you can look at it and see chapter 22. Also, you'll notice... On the, uh, the sermon outline there on the back, you can scan that code if you've got a smartphone or a tablet, and that will take you to uh, some online notes that will also have the Scripture there with it as well. So, Matthew chapter 22... We're going to look at verses 34 to 40. Now, I'll tell you this up front. Even as you're looking at this, you understand many of you have heard this before. If you've been in church for any length of time, you know anything about the Lord and what he taught, then you'll understand that, well, I've heard this before. If this is your first time in church, you probably have heard these statements before just in society or at least some, some kind of extension of them. So this will be familiar to you. When the Pharisees, verse 34, heard that he, Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, two different branches of of Jewish religion leadership, they came together in the same place. The NIV says, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they got together. They're going to plot against him. Here they come, ready, loaded for bear, if you will. And one of them, an expert in the law. Now the law, of course, just to understand this, is the Old Testament law. This isn't law like constitutional American law. This is the law that God had given through Moses and the prophets. And here's here's what he does. This expert in the law, he knew everything. He asked a question to test him. They were always trying to trap Jesus, always trying to get him to to go against what Moses or the prophets had said in the Old Testament. And So they're going to try to set him up, and and they're going to ask him a question thinking they can get him. Aha, they might say. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? Uh, just uh, this guy's sharp. let me just be honest. this Pharisee, this expert in law, he's a sharp guy. He knows the question to ask Jesus to set him up to say something is is better than one thing uh, and then maybe devalue the rest of it all. You see what he's trying to do uh, Jesus uh, just curious, what do you think is the, the greatest command which, which one should we really follow? Is there one that's above all the rest? Because they had valued them all equally. And, and maybe if Jesus devalues some, then they've got him to say, Hey, hey, look, this guy's not from God because he doesn't value the law the way that God wrote it. Pretty sharp guy. Pretty tough question. If I were to ask you the same question, okay, now, now which of all the commandments, let's just take the Ten Commandments, which of all of those Ten Commandments is most important? how do you break that down? Do you, do you pick one? We say, well, I guess this one kind of sums it all up. Or, that's what they're trying to get Jesus. What well, does that mean, Jesus, that you devalue all the rest? You don't think these are important? You see his line of reasoning. He said to him, Jesus speaks to the Pharisee, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on ...on these two commandments. Look at verse 40 again. All the law, that's everything written back in the, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all of that... ...and then the prophets, all of the stuff that they're, they're talking about, they're preaching about in, in the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and so on... ...that are extensions of the law, explaining the law, telling what the law means and how it has implication on people. Jesus says that all of it can be summed up and everything in that law extends out of these two things... He doesn't pick and choose one law over the other. He just says, look, let me tell you how it's all summed up. You want to know what's most important? Let me give you a summary. Let me tell you what everything is based on. Let me tell you the most important principles that you need to know in life, he says. It's not, should you do this and not do this, or make this list of things to do and check them off, or don't do all these things and then you're okay. He doesn't put it in those terms. He says, let me tell you what's most important. You want to know how to make the most out of life? You want to understand really the law, he says? Let me tell you about the two relationships that you've got to make sure are right. And one is vertical. Love God with all that you are. And the other is horizontal. Love others as you would love yourself. So if you are interested in any way... and making the most out of life in 2014, you've got to get this simple truth that Jesus gives into your mind, into your heart, and into your daily life. This may seem like old hat to you. Okay, love God and love people. I've seen that enough. That's kind of cliche by now. But Jesus says everything in the whole Old Testament comes down to that. If he says it's that important, then who am I and who are we to do anything but what he says is most important? Honestly, if you want something deeper than love God and love people, then you're going to look for someone deeper than Jesus Christ, and he ain't going to find that person either. If he says this is what the entirety of Scripture, this is God's heart, here's what God wants you to know. How do you live, he says, that is to love God with all that you are and love others as you would yourself. Now he says the law and the prophets are summed up in all that. So what I what I hope to do this morning is I want to explain this just a little bit to you. Help us understand what what is Jesus talking about? How can we apply that? So what I'm going to do is is if the law as jesus says is based upon all this and if all of the things that explain the law are just an extension of these two truths that i want to go back to the original the foundation of the law the ten commandments that was given to moses and then to the israelites i want to go back there and look for some ways to apply these principles of loving god and loving others based upon the foundation of the law so if the law is an extension of this if the law really explains all of it then certainly we have something we can learn so there are two things that i I want to make sure that you, that you get this morning to understand what does it mean to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and to love others as yourself. The first is that we are to give undivided devotion to God. You'll see that there on the backside of that outline. Give an undivided devotion to God. How do you make the most of relationships? Well, Jesus tells us the first and most important thing to do is to give an undivided devotion to God. He said to them, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's the first and the greatest commandment, the most important. That love there, the word love, means devotedness. It it means uh, something that's way beyond just good feelings or warm fuzzies about the Lord. It's talking about absolute devotion. And then he says, love the Lord your God. This is not some abstract, uh, uh, I guess, fictional kind of character out there. When he says the Lord, he's talking about the one true constituted... Authority for all the world. But we don't like that. There are many here today who, who you, you like God to an extent, but when he demands authority in your life, uh, that's kind of where it stops. We certainly see that in our world today. Uh, we are not naturally bent toward giving ourselves to the authority of anyone but us. In our sinful natures, we only want to answer to ourselves. You see that. I look out and I see folks who have worked in different industry. And I used to be a, a high school teacher. And some of your teachers, or maybe you're retired from teaching, you realize that, that students, by and large, don't just naturally give in to authority. That's an issue. It's a problem. We have a problem with the constituted authorities. In fact, we don't like them. He says to be devoted to the one constituted authority, the only authority that matters, the one that even if we deny that he's there, still remains as our authority, the Lord your God. He says with all your heart, soul, and mind, Now, you might think that Jesus mentioning these, he's talking about three separate parts of who you are. You say, well, you know, in my heart, you know, I guess the way that I feel, in my soul, kind of that immaterial part of me that I can't really explain, but I know that it's there. It's what drives who I am. And then my mind, maybe just the way that that I think. He's not giving us any reason whatsoever to divide these. In fact, these things essentially all mean the same thing. Your heart is the center of your desires and your impulses and your feelings, your emotions, who you really are. When he talks about your soul, he is talking about the immaterial part of you, that, that, that spirit nature, your inner life, who you really are. And when he says your mind, he's talking about your understanding and your thoughts and your intentions, all interwoven who you really are. He's just saying the same thing three different times. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind simply means to be undivided in your devotion and loyalty to Him. Everything about you, not this part over here is okay with God and devoted to Him, and this part I'm not so sure about. Don't we like to divide things out when it comes to the Lord? Most of us are perfectly fine with coming to church and giving ourselves in devotion to the Lord at church. Some of us are probably okay with God impacting the way that our family life goes. and well, Okay, we'll consider God in these decisions and so on. Maybe a few others are are okay with God having some impact on how you work and, and your attitude and so on. But it is rare, unfortunately, to find the person who says everything about me heart, soul, and mind, no division whatsoever, complete devotion to the Lord. I'm not here to try to call anybody out. It's not the issue. I have the same struggles, compartmentalizing my relationship with God I say, well. I guess that's a Sunday thing. I'm a preacher. So I got to make sure that at least on Sunday, I appear godly. But you realize Jesus gives no distinction between Sunday or any other day or between our mind and our, our inner life or anything. He gives no distinction. There's no division whatsoever. And so To love God with heart, soul, and mind simply means to love God with who you really are, not who we can pretend to be on the outside. It means all of us, every part of us, everything about us, to be laid before God and sacrificed and submitted to His authority, completely surrendered to Him. Now, as I mentioned, I believe the Ten Commandments can give us some application. I'm not going to ask you to turn to to where they are, but if you want to make the reference, they're listed first in Exodus chapter 20. I just want to show us from there, if, if loving God is an extension or a summary, rather, of the law, and the law is an extension of that, I, I believe that you can look at at least the first four and say, you know, these are, these are pretty good explanations of what it means to love God. The first commandment is, have no other gods before me. Maybe you've memorized these at some point. Uh, maybe you read them in the King James, thou shalt not. Or maybe you, you a little bit more contemporary English. You will not, or you should not, or you shall not. Have any other gods before me. God and God alone should be the center of everything. We like to make priorities in, in America, and we say, well, God first, and others second, and then me last. You realize God is not contented to simply be first on the list. He is only contented to be the list. Do you understand? That sounds like I'm just playing with words, but I'm really not. There, there is no, well, God is first, and then I'll put others second, and then myself third. Understand there is a difference. God is at the center of everything. Not that He is first, and I'll check God off the box, and then I'll go here. God is the center of it all. So in your relationships with others, guess who is the center of all that? God Himself. In your relationship with yourself and all the things that you do, guess who is the center? It's not, well, I've, I've checked off God and I move on. He is at the center, and He alone. Have no other gods before me. That means everything revolves around Him, His will, and His Word. This undivided devotion and loyalty to the Lord begins with giving Him the rightful place that He deserves in your life. And that is center stage, dominance in everything, to be adored and worshipped in all you do every day. You realize that we are missing out on the fullness of who God is if we relegate Him, our adoration, our worship, our relationship with Him only to Sunday mornings. Now, I'm not here to tell you that if you'll just come to church more, that's the answer. That's not the answer. Maybe coming to church more would be beneficial to you. I I don't know. But I'm not here to put law on you and say, well, do this, do this, do this. All I'm trying to tell you is that the more you love God, the more He is the center of your life. And everything you do, the more of Him you'll experience. And I can promise you, He's good. Taste and see, Psalm 84 says, that the Lord is good. Experience Him and understand His goodness. And that only comes not from just checking off a box and saying, well, I did my God thing for the week. It comes when God is at the center of everything and He is adored and worshipped in your life every single day. The second command gives us the idea that we are to make no idols, that we are to worship, no graven image that the King James says. The idea here is that we are not to worship or to give our devotion to anything tangible, anything we can see. He said, if I could only see God, then then I would be convinced God's far beyond the need to be seen. He does not have to defend himself by appearing to us in the flesh. He's already done that in Jesus Christ. He is not obligated to speak to us in a voice that we can hear. He has already spoken to us through his word. And so as a result, he says, worship me, the unseen God, and do not worship anything that you can see. They say, well, I don't have anything that I put up on the mantle and I bow down to every morning, and that's what I worship. You may not have a small idol sitting on your mantle, but maybe you drive an idol. Maybe you live in an idol. Maybe there's an idol that's in your pocket. Maybe there's an idol that you have in your possession. You say, you know what? if I lose that, I've lost everything. Uh, you know, please don't take that away from me. If, if that goes away, then I've lost it all. Maybe that hits a little close to home, and as some folks will say, stepping on toes just a tad, but I have to tell you that in order to get to your toes, I have to trip over my own. So this isn't about calling anybody out. It's simply about stating the truth. That not it easy for us to worship all the things that we can see? and to make those the centerpiece of our lives. And he says, don't have anything that you can see that you worship. Worship nothing that you can see. Worship only the unseen God. The third command, he says, is don't misuse the Lord's name. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, we immediately think of curse words, and that's certainly included. But that's not where it stops. You say, well, okay, I don't say those words. I guess I'm okay with that. Not so fast, my friend. If we evaluate our lives and we say, are we misusing the name of God, and all of us unfortunately are guilty because it goes way beyond certain words that we probably know we shouldn't say and we apologize for if we do say them. It goes way beyond that. The idea here is that we would honor God's name in all that we do and all that we say. That means that when we sing our hymns on Sunday morning that we're sincere and we're not going through the motions, that we're truly worshiping the Lord, that our souls are stirred, that there is something that we mean when we sing those words. That means when we talk about God or we we represent Him to our friends and our neighbors and our community, that we do so in such a way that is accurate. That means when we talk to someone and we try to give them godly advice that we don't say anything on behalf of God that He's not already said. I've had some friends who... Have been through the tragedy of losing four babies before they were full term. Two were miscarriages, two were stillborn, and they had to bury them. And I remember folks saying to them, "Well, God must have needed another angel." Has God ever said that in His Word? Has He ever spoken that? Has He ever really said that? Or is that something we try to do to make ourselves feel better? You understand that taking the name of the Lord your God in vain includes speaking on His behalf only things that He has said. And that may mean that you go to those friends and you say, I have no idea why this has happened. I have no idea what God is up to. All I can do is stand on His Word that says He's good and He's faithful and I'm going to be there with you and I'll pray for you as opposed to speaking on God's behalf, something that simply is made up because humans need to get our minds around things. You understand? That's just an example. But how how we take the name of the Lord our God in vain and misuse it. The fourth command, he says, is to keep the Sabbath day holy. When I do a word association with you, if I say the word Sabbath, I wonder what you would write down. I don't have any idea what that means. It seems really old. That's an odd Hebrew word that I don't understand. Or Sunday, or I shouldn't do anything at all. Should I just sit in my house and hope that nothing happens so that nobody catches me doing anything? Maybe that's your view of the Sabbath. You realize that for the Jews, the reason that the command was given to honor the Sabbath was, number one, because they were set apart as God's people. They were to be different. And God had, had established a Sabbath day when he rested after creating the world on the seventh day. He set up the fact that here's a day of rest, and he imposes that on his people not to be a burden on them. Not to be, well, don't do this and don't do that and don't do this. The Pharisees had made a big, big deal out of the Sabbath day. In fact, they had a whole list of things you couldn't do on the Sabbath day. You can't do this, that, and the other. We have a lot of the same things. Understand that. Now, if you don't believe me, then just catch me one time cutting the grass on a Sunday afternoon and see how you feel about it. Now, I'll mean, be honest with you. Ha- have somebody catch you doing it, I'll be, I'll tell you, I've never cut the grass on a Sunday afternoon. I don't want to offend anybody here. You understand that? But if we want to get specific about it, let's just say... How that affects us. So we've got our own list. Oh, you can't do that. Better not do this. Listen, our farmers struggle with that, don't you? It's a struggle for our farmers. I mean, what do you do when it's rained all week long and the one sunny day you get is a Sunday? What are you going to do? It's a tough one, isn't it? I know some of you battled that. Is it supposed to be a burden? Don't believe Jesus when he said that he is the Lord of the Sabbath and that Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, meaning we don't serve it, that it serves and blesses us. The idea behind the Sabbath day is that we take time during the week, one full day, to worship God and to rest, to put work in its proper place and to say, God, I'm going to trust you even if I take a day off. Now, if you're like me, that's really hard. I ain't much on days off. I tend to work about every day of the week doing something. That's hard. This is something that brings me under conviction. Am I loving God with all that I am, even in my, my work? Even, even in taking a day off to say, all right, <laughs> there's a lot that I could accomplish today, but you know what? I've not taken time this week to focus on the Lord, to worship and to rest, and to just trust Him even if I accomplish nothing today. So is it about whether or not you cut the grass on Sunday? I don't think so. I think He goes way beyond that. To are you truly each week, are you taking a day, you are taking time to say, Lord, you're in charge. <laughs> I trust you. And I'm going to enjoy worship. And I, God, I'm going to enjoy the rest you've given me. This isn't a burden to keep me from doing all this. This is a refresher. This is a blessing from God. You want to love God and truly experience and make the most of your relationship. Those first four commandments have a lot to say to us about worshiping God alone, not anything we can see about making sure to honor the name of the Lord and to put our work in its proper place. Give an undivided devotion to God. And then secondly, Jesus says, be an unselfish benefit to others. He says, verse 39, the second command is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Give undivided devotion, loyalty to God, and be an unselfish benefit to other people. Love others as yourself. We're great at loving ourselves. Now, I don't say that that's always a bad thing, because instinctively, if you're hungry, what do you do? You look for something to eat. It's just the way that it is. If you didn't love yourself enough to feed yourself, you'd starve and die, which is not very loving toward yourself. So there are some things about loving yourself that are perfectly okay, and yet don't we often get this out of balance? I believe one of the things Jesus is talking about is how you instinctively love yourself. That's the instinct we ought to have toward other people. That's the true love that we instinctively do for them what we know we need to have done for ourselves. We are an unselfish benefit to them. Most of our relationships, if we're honest, with other people are transactional. It's what's called quid pro quo. This for that. You do this and I'll do that. If you don't do this, then I'm not going to do that. If you show up and do this, this, and this, then, okay, you will be rewarded. That, that's the majority of our horizontal, our human relationships is transactional. Jesus calls us to a much higher level in our relationships than mere transaction. If someone does this for me, then I will do this for them. Or if I do this for them, then I expect this in return. If they don't do this, then I'm not doing that. You can count on it. That's, that's at the very base of human relationships, Jesus has called us to a much higher and deeper and more fulfilling standard. In loving others, we're to be unselfish, which is a choice, of course, every single day. If you live with anybody at all, if you interact with anybody on a daily or weekly basis, which I believe probably includes everybody here, whether you, uh, I guess unless you've you've hidden yourself from all relationship, you interact with people, it's a choice to be unselfish. It doesn't come naturally. And people certainly annoy you, don't they? Maybe your New Year's resolution is to avoid a certain person. I don't know. Well, they get on my nerves. They bring out the worst in me. Jesus says they don't have to. He says you've got a different standard. The fifth command in the the 10 is to honor your father and mother. Uh, For some, this is easy. For others, it's more difficult. But understand, when, when Moses was given this command from God, and then he passed it on to the Israelites, it wasn't in children's church. It was for adults. It wasn't just so the adults could say to kids, now, God put it on these engraved stones, so he really means it. You better honor me. You better obey me or else. That's not the relationship that God has called parents to have with their children and or else kind of relationship. Are there times when the threat of punishment certainly corrects behavior? Uh, yeah, it does. I've got four children. But, but he says to honor your father and mother, talking mainly to adults when he says that. And so this is, this is about honoring those folks who have brought us into the world, who in some cases have done so much for us, in other cases have let us down so much. He doesn't give stipulations, if your parents are great and godly and wonderful and you really like them, then honor your father and mother. But if they're not, then you're sort of off the hook, because who in the world want to honor somebody like that? It's tough, isn't it? This stuff isn't easy. I don't want to make it sound trite and simple. The way that we can honor our parents is to respect them, to love them, and when it's appropriate, of course, a certain age, to obey them, to respond with obligation to them as they get older, to be there to take care of them, to help with whatever needs they may have if it's in your power, to honor their memory as best you can with the caveat that it is for God's glory not to make idols and gods out of our ancestors. To honor your father and mother is one way that you can make the most of relationships being an unselfish benefit to them, even if they're not the kind of people that deserve to be honored. Moses went on in the sixth commandment to record that God said, don't murder. Well, I would venture to say, looking around, you seem like nice enough people, that we probably don't have any murderers among us. At least, I hope not. I'd hate to have to turn you in for the reward. But... Maybe we don't have any murderers among us. So we say we're off the hook when it comes to that. But our world is full of them. It happens all the time around us and we get numb to it. Did you realize that in the 20th century, between Hitler and Lenin and Stalin and Mao from Cambodia, between them there were 175 million people killed? That's in our modern great world unjustified killing has become routine and if we're honest we know every single one of us is capable of it you realize that oh no i could never do that but when we look in matthew chapter 5 and we see jesus peel back the layer on the external to show the sin behind the sin what does he say even if you've hated someone in your heart it's it's you've murdered them in your heart that's where it begins So it's do not murder in your relationships, even in your heart and even in your mind. What if, what if you took a tally this week of how many times you murdered somebody in your heart? That person that cut you off in traffic. The slow person in line at Walmart. Who brought 120 items into the 20 items only line. It's like there wasn't a one in front of that. Get out of the way. I go to Walmart too. What if we made a tally? How many times would we say, oh my goodness, Lord. I I, I just kill people all the time. I may not do it physically. But certainly in my heart. Being an unselfish benefit to others means that we don't murder someone even in our thoughts and our words about them in our actions behind their backs the 10 commandments go on to give us more explanation do not commit adultery the next one says i was watching star wars episode 3 the other night it's the one where anakin skywalker turns to darth vader you know he becomes i don't want to give you any spoilers but that's what happens in the movie and one of the commercials that came on it was about 10:30 at night on a channel known for its extreme nature. One of the commercials that came on glorified adultery. Gave you the opportunity to do it in a discreet way. The tagline for their company is, Life is short, have an affair. And the commercial basically was telling you all the ways that it could could spice up your marriage if you simply would go outside your marriage for satisfaction. We've glorified it in our culture. To some, that's absolutely repulsive, and I sure hope that it is, but for others, you say, I'm kind of numb to it all. Maybe you've been through that, and someone has done that to you, or maybe you've done it yourself. We've reduced the idea that God has given of marriage that is a lifelong loving commitment between a man and a wife. We've reduced that to lust and to whims and to emotion and to an old idea that's based on some tradition that needs to change with the times. And as a result, we can't be trusted any longer as a society. Do you understand that when adultery and a redefinition of marriage is okay in our society, we can't be trusted anymore? Jesus peels back the layers on this. You might say, well, I've never done that. I mean, I would never do that. I I, I believe in marriage and I'm committed. Or I've seen it, and maybe my parents went through that. I, I would never do those things. Jesus, and so wise of fashion, peels back the layers in Matthew 5, and he takes us again to the sin behind the sin. He says, You may not have physically committed adultery, but if you've ever lusted for someone in your heart, (laughs) then you've already committed adultery with them in your mind and your heart. You say, That's pretty tough. But Jesus says, Look, I want to clean you up completely from the inside out. Just because you're not doing things on the outside doesn't mean that it's not going on in you and inside of you. Being an unselfish benefit to others means that in your marriage and in your relationships with the opposite sex that you set boundaries. Jesus says you ought to get ruthless in eliminating any sexual sin. He said if your right eye causes you to sin, and get rid of it, throw it out. Be ruthless, he says. Refuse to let lust take up residence in your heart. And ladies, that's not just a guy's issue. Not anymore. The eighth command, he says, Moses re- re- reveals from God: Don't steal. We certainly see this. There's personal, there's institutionalized theft. We steal on our taxes. We steal in our time at work. And we just waste time doing whatever we want to do on social media or solitaire or whatever it may be. We steal. We steal with our money from God as well. The Bible records for us in Malachi. But not giving to Him. Being an unselfish benefit means that you're faithful at work to do what you've been asked to do even if nobody knows that you're not. It, it means being generous with what you have toward other people. It means being honest in your bookkeeping. It means being consistent in your giving to God's work through the church. I'm not ever going to beg you for money on behalf of the church. I'm not going to do it. I don't think there's any point in it. I'm not going to chide you and berate you and all of that stuff. But I will say this. It's biblical to give to God's work through the church. It's biblical. And when God gets His first then He promises to bless you. Well, all right. I guess if I give to God, then I'll be a millionaire. I'm not saying that. Nancy and I have given to God, out of every paycheck that we've gotten since we got married, off the top, 10% to God before anybody else gets paid. And guess what? I'm not a millionaire. Now, I know some of you, you look at the salary churches pay me, I'm not a millionaire. It'd be nice. In fact, somebody asked Hank, when I was out for Christmas, what you you just let your dad know if he needs anything, you know, you just just let me know. And Hank my son, 8-year-old thought for a second, he said he needs a million dollars. <laughs> Still waiting on it though, unfortunately. <laughs> I can't promise you how God's going to bless you, but I just know that when you refuse to steal from others, steal from God, even in things you think aren't a big deal, God honors that. He blesses it. He really, really does. The ninth command, as we get to a close, Moses reported was don't lie. Don't bear false witness. This is how this applies. Loving others means that we only tell the truth about people. You know, I always tell the truth about people. I'll tell you the truth about that person. You understand that telling the truth also means doing so in love, and maybe sometimes you simply say nothing rather than to bear a false or a very damaging report about someone. Even in casual conversation and social media and email and storytelling, we refuse to lie and we tell only the truth. We don't exaggerate. You know, there's an old saying for washed-up old baseball players like myself, the older I get, the better I was. But even in that, God calls us to tell the truth and not exaggerate, to be bearers of truth and not falsehood. The tenth command, he shows us how to love others, and that is don't covet what others have. Don't be consumed with a desire for what you don't have. I think in some weird way the fact that Charlie Strong, the coach at L for their football program, who's now leaving for the University of Texas for $5 million a year, and I watch on social media yesterday all my friends in Louisville who now hate Charlie Strong, even though in his four years at Louisville they reached some unprecedented heights. They now despise him because he's taking another job and he's moving on for more money. I think in some way there's some level maybe of righteousness Well, he ought to honor his contract. And yet there's in some way a breaking of the tenth commandment by those folks who just simply want what he's able to get. Now, for some of you, you just love the fact that Louisville's football coach is leaving because some of you are Kentucky fans and you just soon, Louisville, instead of Kentucky having to rise up to where Louisville is, you just soon, Louisville, fall down to the bottom (laughs) where Kentucky is. Now, I get all of that. But, you know. (laughs) But isn't it interesting how sometimes we covet what others have but we're so vehement so much vitriol that comes from us when somebody has what they don't deserve or what we think we're entitled to. Maybe that's an issue for you. The lie then is what you have is what you are and you are what you wear, or what you drive or what you do. This affects our relationships with other people because we're constantly jealous. We can't celebrate with them. We can't be happy for them because we don't think they deserve it and we think that we do. Steals our souls, steals our joy and our contentment and our ability to relate to somebody else without all those layers. Be an unselfish benefit to others, to your neighbor. Jesus would say that that's not just the people you like. He said in Matthew 5 if you're only good to the people who are good to you, what good are you? You haven't done anything. That's easy. Well, it's tough when you understand that truth, that our neighbor is not just the person that we like or that would do something for us, but it's the person who doesn't like us, who has nothing good to say about us, who by our nature we hate because of who they are, the color of their skin, their religion, whatever it may be. Those are our neighbors. Living out this sermon the idea of giving an undivided devotion and loyalty to God, the idea of being an unselfish benefit to other people, living it out will help you make the most of your relationships this year. But as I mentioned from the outset, it is impossible to do this apart from faith in Jesus Christ. You will never get to God apart from Him. You can try to love God by doing all these great things and love others by being the best neighbor that anybody's ever had in Murray and Calloway County. But apart from Jesus Christ, you will die in your sins and spend eternity apart from Jesus, apart from God, in hell. It's a difficult truth, but you've got to hear it. I I would be unfaithful to the scripture this morning if I didn't tell you that. Not because I want to threaten you. Because I want you to know the truth. That apart from Jesus Christ, you and I are nothing. But with Him, we can love God, give Him an undivided devotion. With Him, we can love others, be an unselfish benefit. And so I, I wonder if you'd just pray this morning and say, Lord, stir my affection, stir my love for You. Make me undivided in my devotion. And Lord, make me an unselfish benefit to other people. Won't you pray with me? It was out of the great goodness of God that He loved those He didn't have to love, as you and me. By sending His Son Jesus to die a death He didn't deserve on our behalf. God is not asking us this morning to do anything He has not already done. Not asking us to do anything He cannot give us the power to do. So. And just ask you to pray and say, Lord, stir my devotion, my affection for you, and make me an unselfish benefit to others. Receiving his, as we will sing, amazing grace to do it all. Lord, as we bow in these closing moments, stir our hearts to obedience to your word. Help us, Lord, to be undivided in our devotion and unselfish in our benefit to you and to others. Change us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.